Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Hello and welcome to Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka. I'm Patrick Boyer. For our third installment about First Nations, let's turn now to the indispensable role of Indigenous guides in European colonization of Canada and Muskoka. Did you ever have to ask somebody directions to a place you were trying to get to? Perhaps the person didn't know or was reluctant to help. (laughs) Did they shrug? Well, you, you can't really get there from here. Nowadays, even your GPS can lead you with precision to the wrong location. You get the idea. When traveling, we depend on others, those who made maps, built roads, put up signs, sent satellites into space to create the global positioning system, then programmed your GPS app. Now, suppose it's 400 years ago, and you're on the edges of North America facing wilderness. You see no route inland and need a local person to direct you, even take you. Indigenous people did not just happen to learn as a favor to aliens who showed up needing help. Their deep knowledge of the land and skilled ways to travel great distances over it, their millenniums-long civilizations in South Central and North America had networks of travel over pathways and waterways. Along these established routes, they conducted commerce, traded goods, exchanged information, made alliances, shared techniques, traveled to or returned from battle, and extended their nation or clan, sometimes through intertribal marriages to prevent warfare, other times by adopting women and children whose warrior husbands and fathers they had just slain in battle. Their knowledge and experiences were passed down generations through oral tradition, the subject of last month's broadcast. They had many practical wayfinding techniques as well all of which meant First Nation guides were indispensable to foreigners wanting to explore and draw maps of North America's interior. By the early 1600s, Indigenous guides used these skills escorting new arrivals through this region, first the irrepressible teenage explorer Etienne Brulé, who overwintered with different First Nations and learned their languages, 
Then Samuel Champlain, the map-making founder of New France. Two centuries later, in the 1800s, descendants of those guides led land developer Alexander Sheriff, then David Thompson, the legendary fur trader, explorer, and map maker, as well as many British military officers, all trying to find a navigable inland canal route from Georgian Bay over Muskoka's watershed to the Ottawa River. Whatever destination they had in mind, European and Canadian-born explorers depended on First Nation guides to lead them. It's hard to imagine a more bizarre challenge. First, a guide did not just sit in the bow of a canoe and point the direction. He paddled all the way, in the process, discerning the right route by reading the landscape and drawing on his inherited knowledge. Second, to travel the continent's expressways of water, or winter ice, and to cross long portages, he used native inventions for versatile, lightweight travel. Birch bark canoes, snowshoes, and toboggans. Europeans floundered at the edge of forested woodlands and rocky impasses when using their heavy wooden rowboats in shallow waters and crossing land-linked portages, or when driving their cumbersome horse-drawn wagons in rugged terrain. The reason we still have snowshoes, toboggans, and canoes in Muskoka today is because Europeans eventually saw the suitability of First Nations transport technologies for the Canadian Shields Northland terrain and adopted them. After Europeans and North Americans first made contact, it was the First Nations' harmonious ways of living with nature and their thousands of years surviving because of that synergy that enabled the traders and explorers, prospectors and missionaries, surveyors and settlers to be guided by them into the interior without starving, freezing to death or drowning or being eaten alive. This was because in addition to knowing roots, an indigenous guide provided weather readings and noticed changing conditions. He taught foreigners in his care how to live off the land once their supplies ran out by spearing fish, catching birds or finding bird eggs, trapping animals, which berries to eat <laughs> and the ones to avoid. He showed them nature's pharmacy, plants for healing wounds, other plants to reduce sickness. He trained them how to repair a leaking or broken canoe in the wilderness or even make a new one. He could read the stars at night for direction and study landscape and wildlife behavior during the day for clues about what was happening around them. He knew places to avoid, and when they began crossing into territory 
whose occupants had to agree to their presence. He made cooking fires for food and warming fires against the darkness and chill of night. He was a grunt laborer who carried heavy gear over portages. He knew when and where and how to shelter. To sum it all up, a wayfinding indigenous guide was not only the navigator, but also a means of transport, a weatherman, hunter, fisher, doctor, laborer, negotiator, and indispensable companion. Why being a guide was a dilemma for such a well-suited person had to do with those seeking his help. Contact brought together different races with contrary cultures. An Indian guide was traveling with stubborn men who considered him their inferior and either disdained him or treated him as a child. They held fixed ideas about how things should be done based on practices in other places and equipment used in different conditions. Most begrudged having to learn new ways. Many were reluctant to adapt. They wanted to be discoverers without discovering much of anything. This meant indispensable indigenous guides were treated as invisible non-persons. The new arrivals called America's First Nations heathens because their patterns and objects of worship were different from their own quite bizarre religious beliefs. They called them savages, although the cruelties practiced by Europeans on humans in the same era, with their crusades, inquisitions, vile prisons, and sadistic torture chambers, were easily a match for the barbarity of Indians. Upon arrival, colonists claimed to have discovered new lands, which they accordingly tagged a new world and claimed for themselves. Ever since, this side of the Atlantic has been known as the New World. What really happened when Europeans reached places well known to millions who had already been dwelling here for thousands of years was nothing more than land being discovered by aliens who simply had never seen it and been here before. It was the lands were only new to them. It's as if a spaceship landed at Huntsville and the folks who emerged saw Earth for the first time and claimed their entire planet for themselves. To continue this parallel with the nature of contact, the new arrivals from a distant planet would then declare the society they found an aberration because we differ from what was familiar to them. In an imperious manner, they would next declare our planet empty and we, living in our homeland, would be rendered into invisible non-beings. After a station break, let's look at how this worked out at ground level. By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. 
This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Boyer, and in this episode of Muskoka's Modern History, we're looking at how contact between Native Americans and Europeans worked out by examining the specific case of Indigenous guides. Because of their racism and their vanity, most foreign men who depended entirely on Native guides for their lives failed to mention them in their reports. It was as if they had traveled alone to discover new places, rather than having been guided by Indians to places already known. By extension, many non-Indigenous historians who began chronicling the exploits of explorers and settlers through their colonizers' eyes omitted the role of First Nation guides and the importance of Indigenous wayfinding methods entirely. With their belief in being racial superiors, they fashioned a selective false history. In turn, this version of events would be taught in schools to generations of settler children. Indian guides, indispensable yet invisible. At Baysville, an Ontario historic site marker cast in long-lasting bronze, records the names and dates of English explorers who crossed Lake of Bays, teaching generations who've seen it that these remarkable foreigners did it all by themselves. Weren't they wonderful? Aren't we fortunate, children, that our forebears were such courageous men? Now, what was the reality? In 1613, Samuel Champlain, the governor of French colonies in North America and a seasoned explorer and map maker, wanted to go further into the interior. He believed he could find the Pacific Ocean and China, where he wanted to trade for silk. He headed from his settlement on the St. Lawrence up the Ottawa River. Champlain and his party encountered a human barrier. The guardian of the river, fearsome Chief Tessuat, had established a strategic camp with his Algonquins at, the, at a narrow passage. They barred travelers from continuing until something of value had been taken from those ascending or descending their waterway. Going downstream, for instance, Wendat traders canoeing their harvest of beaver pelts to Quebec for barter with the French could only continue after their canoes were lighter by a number of fine furs. Here, Chief Tessuat refused Champlain's request for information about the Ottawa River's headwaters. Champlain was going upstream to try to find the large saltwater lake beyond it. Tessuat also refused Champlain's request for guides to take him there. Had Champlain been able to explore that northern region, he likely would have found Hudson's Bay before the English, and we'd be calling it Champlain's Bay. 
But that's not how history played out. Because savvy chieftain Tesuat denied both requests. Why? Because he did not want to share knowledge of First Nation territory with outsiders. He had seen how they claimed it for themselves. Champlain then wrote in his diary, quote, I have often wished to make this discovery, but I couldn't do it without the savages who don't want one or any of our people to go with them. This was just one of many similar frustrations Champlain experienced. S.E. Morrison, in his biography, explains, no Indian wished to show Champlain any new country. All tried to keep him out, suspecting that to let the pale faces into the source of their furs would be bad business. And of course, they were right. Northern Indians were always cagey about explorers, Morrison adds, instinctively refusing to open their country up to Europeans who they tolerated only as military allies and traders. Champlain could never get farther than Lake Nipissing, and then only on the excuse of recruiting a war party. That was in 1615, when he came into this region and Muskoka first appeared by him on a European's map. In his introduction to Early Days in Muskoka, George Boyer, my grandfather who was born in Muskoka, describes how in the 1800s, quote, the early explorers sent here at a time when government institutions in this part of Canada were just taking shape, found that Indians who knew the waterways of Muskoka seemingly did not wish to have the territory become well-known. We find plenty of examples of this resistance to intruders. In 1826, at Holland Landing Military Depot down at the south end of Lake Simcoe, Lieutenant Henry Briscoe of the Royal Engineers was repeatedly refused, uh, frustrated, trying to launch his exploratory expedition of the Ottawa here on track. Canoes not ready when they were supposed to be, hired indigenous guides repeatedly failing to appear for duty. Throughout the 1800s, other members of the Royal Engineers, who'd been also ordered to explore and map the Huron-Ottawa track, reported similar problems. Later, so would Ontario land surveyors. The annoyed English speakers began calling natives lazy Indians because they did not recognize the reality of passive resistance to invasion. Others were more perceptive and civil. Alexander Sheriff in 1826 and David Thompson in 1837 exploring across Muskoka's watershed to the Ottawa River, new native guides were essential, respected them, and wrote of them in their diaries. For instance, on June 15, 1837, Thompson described engaging three Métis and Indigenous canoe men, Paul Laronde, 
Jean-Baptiste Deron, Fikirari, and Antoine Saint-Iron-Quiche. On balance, though, it was not a winning arrangement. Euro-Canadian exploration parties were no day camp outings on a calm lake, but serious high-risk adventures and ventures with rabbits to shoot, heavy gear to move, and portages to make. These were all good reasons an Indigenous guide might choose not to take novices into vast, rugged terrain. Indians hired to guide, paddle, and do the heavy lifting, deemed inferiors by the self-esteemed civilized Christians hiring them, were treated accordingly. Well, who wants to bother with that? Yes, better weapons and new goods could be bartered for animal pelts or bought with money earned guiding explorers and others, but there was also strong reason to shy away from alcohol's dangers, disagreements, and death in the bush. Also, shyness and the linguistic barrier were two more factors. The bleak experiences of guides accompanying the pale-faced parties added another disincentive. Around campfires, listening to guides trade stories of their personal trials and tribulations with explorers, Indigenous men heard some hilarious experiences, but also learned of horrific episodes. And through long winters, they heard foreboding elders warn about the future. Another reason to sidestep European foreigners wanting their help. The rising fear was that the ever-increasing number of European intruders presaged dark and dangerous times. And indeed, as decades advanced, negative attitudes in the ever-larger settler population began hardening against First Nations. Thank you for listening. Producer for Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka here at Hunter's Bay Radio is Matt Fisher, a man of Ojibwe heritage. I'm Patrick Boyer.